0: We all know there are times when you don't have many choices in who you work with, like when a pipe bursts and you need a plumber right now. But when it comes to your mental health, you should have choices so you don't get stuck with a therapist who can't remember what you tell them every week. To find a good therapist for you, try ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including thousands of mental health providers. We're talking about therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed, in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments, either online or in person. I use this, and you should too. Go to ZocDoc.com stronger and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's zocdoc.com slash stronger, zocdoc.com slash stronger. But sometimes you have to feel bad, right? To go through the motions of allowing yourself to feel bad to really heal.
1: That's right. There's this culture, and it's a really good culture. I'm a part of it, you're a part of it, right? That we grow from pain and suffering and that we can get stronger but we get stronger on the other side. And if you enter a really challenging um, situation and you tell yourself, well, I'm gonna grow from this. This is gonna make me stronger. You often slow down your healing and you're getting together.
0: Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Do you hate change? Do you try to keep doing things the same just because you don't want to change anything? Do you struggle to adjust when the world around you changes? If so, today's episode is for you. Change is tough. I see so many people struggle with change. Sometimes it's changing a habit. At other times, it's coping when the world around you changes. Here to help us with that today is Brad Stolberg. Brad researches, writes, and coaches on well-being and sustainable excellence. He's the best-selling author of several books, including The Practice of Groundedness and Peak Performance. Now he has a new book called The Master of Change. Some of the things he talks about today are how to be both rugged and flexible in the face of change, the key factors that will help you navigate change, and how to get clarity when you're struggling to make a decision during times of uncertainty. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for The Therapist Take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Brad's mental strength-building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here's Brad Stolberg on how to embrace change. Brad Stolberg, welcome to Mentally Stronger.
1: Amy Moran, it's great to be with you.
0: So I've been a fan of you since uh, your first book, back in the day. And I know you've written a lot about uh, passion and peak performance and uh, how we can all get to be better. But I'm thrilled that you now wrote a book called Master of Change, about how we can get better at embracing change and shifting. What made you decide to write a book specifically about change?
1: It's two things. Um, The first is... I had the kernel of the idea that became this book during the pandemic, when every single major publication was in that cycle of running stories with headlines. When will we get back to normal? And something about that language just really struck me as backwards, that there probably was no getting back to normal. And even if we could get back to normal, why would that be the goal? And in parallel with the pandemic, in addition to that event affecting me, just like it affected so many people, I was undergoing all sorts of personal changes, uh, gave birth to my son. And then within the same time period that the book came out, a daughter relocated across the country, decided to go full-time as an author, uh, had a pretty painful estrangement from close family members had to give up the sport that had been a central part of my identity because of a chronic condition that required major surgery. So all of this was happening to me. Societally, we were going through this massive disruption of the pandemic. And I realized that the only model for change that I had told me to try to get back to where I was. And in all these domains, that just didn't seem like the right model.
0: Oh, I like that a lot because you're right. I remember during the pandemic early on and somebody said, why would we wanna go back to normal? It's not like that was particularly awesome before, but why would we wanna to return to the exact same thing? And for me, like a light bulb went off of, oh yeah, cause it's something I've seen as a therapist too. People come into my office and they say, you know, I need to work on my depression so I can get back to normal, or I need to work on uh, this stress that I'm going through so I can get back to normal, rather than seeing that the alternative is maybe you can create a new sense of normal for you by doing things differently.
1: Exactly. And when I started doing the research for the book, the first thing that I realized was this old model of change, which is derived from a scientific term called homeostasis. And it states that we have order and stability, then there's some kind of disruption or change, and then we go back to order and stability. Now, that model of change turns out to be faulty. In a couple of decades ago, little known to lay people, the scientific community adopted this model of change that's called allostasis, which states that yes, we have order and yes, we go through disruptions. And while we crave stability, that stability is always somewhere new. So the old model describes change as a cycle of order, disorder, back to order. The new model describes change as a cycle of order, disorder, reorder. And the scientific community has embraced this as the very... Um, foremost accurate representation of how change actually occurs to any kind of living system. Yet we're still stuck in the homeostatic version, trying to get back to where we were, even though often it's impossible.
0: Interesting. And I find that people who come into my therapy office will do two things when it comes to change. One is they underestimate their ability to adapt. And number two is that they overestimate how difficult it's going to be. So then I'll have people say, like, I just I don't want to make things worse or I don't I don't dare do anything different because it sounds like it's too much work. So people stay the same. What did you find in your research about why we often resist change?
1: Well, I think that you're spot on with those observations. So I'm not surprised that you see that frequently in your clinical role. I think it really comes down to our entire framework. People hear change and they think of an event that happens to them. But change is the ongoing nature of life. It's the nature of reality. The first rule of physics is entropy. Things are always moving towards impermanence, towards change. Every wisdom tradition centers around addressing impermanence. Um, Heraclitus, the famous Greek philosopher, said that we can't step into the same river twice. So once you shift your mindset from thinking of change as a singular event that happens to you. And instead, start thinking of change as basically synonymous with life. We're constantly in conversation with change. One could argue that's the definition of life, is being in conversation with change. Then suddenly, instead of becoming this boogeyman or this woman that we fear, change just becomes a natural part of what we do day in and day out. Now, some changes and disruptions are larger than others, but we get empowered to be in conversation with change instead of it happening to us.
0: Ah, I like that idea. And some of them are voluntary. Like sometimes we might think, all right, I want to change my job, but sort of like the the discomfort of your current job has to outweigh the joy that you might think you're going to get from another job. But sometimes change does happen and we didn't ask for it. Like we lose a loved one or the pandemic. Do we deal with those two different kinds of changes differently? Generally, the
1: change that we don't ask for, especially if it's in a negative direction, uh, tends to affect us more powerfully. And it causes more distress because, of course, right, we like to predict things. And when unpredictable things happen, especially if they're in a hard direction, it, it is very hard. However, researchers find that even after positive changes, people tend to experience a rise in distress. So after marriage, after starting a new job, after winning the lottery, people report increased stress in their life. So it gets back to this notion that living systems, we really do like stability, but that stability is a moving target. So rather than trying to be stable by resisting change or denying change or going back to where we were, the goal is really how do we become stable through change? And ironically, allostasis comes from the Greek root allo, which means variable, and stasis, which means stability. So it's getting stability by being variable. And what a beautiful double meaning, right? The way to be stable through change is through change, by changing, by adapting to at least some extent.
0: I'm glad you brought up the lottery thing because that was the first thing that stuck in my head when you said how positive change can sometimes create distress. And you see it, there's TV shows, I think, about the lottery ruined my life. But we're not good at predicting which changes will make our lives better and which ones might actually create more distress for us, right?
1: That's right. And as you said, oftentimes, even toward the negative changes where we're pretty certain they're going to have a negative impact, and they do, that negative impact tends not to last as long as we think and tends to dampen off sooner than we think it will. Now, part of this is simply because when something really negative happens to us, like you said, grief, um, injury, illness when we are going through the thick of those things, time slows down. It feels like it will just be forever. In a part of us, it will always be forever, but that part of us becomes smaller and smaller. And what felt like forever, 10 years later, often doesn't feel like forever then.
0: That makes sense then why we sometimes dread those things or why we think it's going to be way worse than it might actually be, or we don't. Uh, have a good sense of, all right, this is going to be rough for a month or six months, but five years down the road, I could be okay again, right?
1: Right. And, and you know, the nerd in me loves to understand the science here, and it's really, really fascinating. So I'm going to take just a minute to go into it, if that's okay. Please do. So when we are at our best, when we're having peak experiences, researchers call this flow states, and everything is just clicking, and time and space get warped, and Everything just speeds up. We are one with the universe, right? We are in the zone. Now, when we're going through massive changes or periods of distress, the opposite happens. Our brain starts to perceive the world around us frame by frame. And it does this because evolutionarily, we needed to be programmed to be hyper aware when we were in uh, threatening situations. So it's as if when we're in flow, we're watching this wonderful continuous movie And when we feel under distress, we're watching that movie individual frame by individual frame by individual frame. Now it can be the same one month, six months, one year period of our life, but you can imagine how different it feels if we're living it frame by frame. And as someone that's experienced a pretty severe deep depression, nothing to me explains the slowing of time and just the feeling of being stuck in the mud more than that frame by frame. Because even though I was really only in the thick of it, probably for about seven months. Those seven months felt like forever because every thought, every feeling was just so central in my mind. Whereas when we're doing all right or when we're doing really well, things just flow really continuously.
0: Mm, and that makes sense. Like a something happy, fun that we're doing goes by in a blink of an eye and the, the painful experiences just seem so long and drawn out. And. I mean, we've all experienced that when you sit through something that's, you know, is long and boring. It seems like it's about four years, but you do something fun and it goes by in a blink of an eye. But our bigger changes in life are like that as well, right?
1: Exactly. And I think that the biggest actionable takeaway on, um, on this component of the book is when we are feeling like we're stuck forever, if we can just remind ourselves that what feels like forever now won't later and our job is just to get to the other side of this. Don't worry about meaning. Don't worry about growth. That'll all happen on its own time. Just remind yourself that, yes, it feels like I will be stuck here forever. But once I'm at the other side, I will look back and it won't feel like it was that long. And hopefully that can empower us to get to the other side.
0: Do you want to get high quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan, or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com/stronger and get our special deal. Butcherbox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com/stronger and use code stronger to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. I like that and that's brings to mind a couple of skills that we often use in therapy where we'll say to people like you know five years down the road how much will this still be this distressing to you and people sometimes get some perspective and say well you know five years down the road i'll say this was a stressful period of my life but i'll be able to see it from a a different perspective and it probably won't be as bad and on the other hand though sometimes when we're talking about the emotions and the difficulties people are going through is uh they want to fast forward because they want to work on it and think well well it's not so bad so they begin to look for the bright side just as they're beginning to go through something tough to say well at least and it's sort of like they're reasoning their way out of feeling bad because they don't want to feel bad but sometimes you have to feel bad right to go through the motions of allowing yourself to feel bad to really heal
1: that's right so in the book i talk about this pretty extensively how there's this culture and it's a really good culture i'm a part of it you're a part of it right that we grow from pain and suffering and that we can get stronger. But we get stronger on the other side. And if you enter a really challenging um, situation and you tell yourself, well, I'm going to grow from this. This is going to make me stronger. You often slow down your healing and you're getting to the other side because you can't force that growth and that meaning. It has to happen on its own time. And when it really sucks, of course it doesn't feel like it's meaningful. Like it just sucks. And it's okay for things to just suck and to work through them. And if you can do that, odds are, again, the meaning and the growth takes care of itself. It's a trap that I've run into and big challenges because I am so optimistic. I always try to look for, like you said, the positive or how it's going to make me better, stronger, hopefully more compassionate. And I don't give myself a chance just to sit in the suck. And until we really sit in the suck for a lot of hard things, generally, like we don't get through it. We've got to at least have some time where it just stinks and to give ourselves permission for something to just stink.
0: Yeah, that's tough to do, isn't it?
1: It really is, especially, again, for op- for, for people that are generally optimistic. Um, I don't know if you've seen this in your clinical practice, but I've certainly seen that depressions, um, bereavement tends to be, I mean, it's freaking hard for everyone, but for really optimistic kind of chipper people at baseline, these things tend to be the worst because it's so counter to their normal way of feeling and doing.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. And I think another big obstacle is when you're surrounded by chipper people who try to cheer you up when you're going through a tough time. And it's tough. It's tough to sit with somebody who's sad. If you love somebody and they're going through a rough patch, it's really tough to let them stay there. That's sort of our natural tendency is to try to pull them out of it, to try to help them feel better. But when we do that, we're robbing them of their experience to to go through it. But it's also hard to be on the receiving end when you're going through a tough time and somebody says, well, at least it's not that bad, or I know somebody that had it worse than you did. And and because they're struggling, because it's uncomfortable for them to watch you be in pain.
1: That's right. And most of the time people are well-intentioned, but I think the best thing that you can do to a loved one or a friend in those situations is just to say, I see you, this seems really hard, I'm here for you. But like you said, for someone that likes to fix problems or that likes to be in positive situations, Sitting and bearing witness to someone that you care about in pain is really hard. So, what do we do? We try to fill it with all kinds of chipper, cliche, positive remarks, um, which is often really hard for both people.
0: And do you feel like down the road we always do uncover some kind of meaning or purpose?
1: So, what the research here shows is um, most of the time. So, yes, when we experience big changes in a negative direction at the time that we're distressing, Generally, we grow from them, we gain meaning, we look back on them. And while we might say something like, you know, I would never wish it on anyone else, and I wouldn't have wanted to have that experience, now that I'm on the other side, I've learned a thing or two and it's changed me in a positive way. Now, there are a couple of exceptions. So things like capital T, you know, triple underline bolded capital T trauma, Um, it's very hard to find meaning and growth from those things, and that's okay. So survivors of sexual abuse and rape, it's not really a meaningful experience for most people, nor is it imaginable that it could be. Um, People that go through trauma of war, same thing, not a lot of meaning. Um, People that are involved in violent crimes, not a lot of meaning. So that's also really hard to get through those periods and to acknowledge that sometimes there is just senseless pain in this world. And that's a part of being human. And maybe the one kernel that we can get out of that is increased compassion for others.
0: Mm. I'm glad you added that in there that maybe you won't always find some sort of meaning or greater purpose because I think there's the pressure to do that. And other people will try to find it for you sometimes too. And if you've gone through something horrific, they'll say, well, at least it made you a stronger person or they'll always look for the bright side. And it's tough to hear that when you think, well, yeah, but I didn't go through this horrific thing just to be a strong person. Like it wasn't my choice. It happened to me. So I'm really glad that you added that caveat in there.
1: And maybe the meaning to it as we're having this conversation is just that, that like sometimes there's just senseless pain and that sucks. And maybe that helps us be a little bit kinder to ourselves, a little bit kinder to other people. Um, And maybe that's the quote unquote meaning of of some of these things, but to get really scientific and clinical about this lowercase T trauma, we tend to have meaning and growth from sometimes capital T trauma, we grow and have meaning from, but what I'm going to call bold capital T trauma, the stuff that you would never wish on anyone or even imagine that stuff can just suck. And that's okay.
0: Yeah. And we don't always necessarily have to grow from it. Because the other thing I'll hear from people is like, if something great didn't come out of it, then it means I didn't learn a lesson or that I'm not, I, I did something wrong because I didn't grow stronger because of it. But sometimes those big things just kind of leave us scarred too.
1: That's right. And we're harping on such an important point for people that read books like ours and are really into mental fitness and growth, which is all of that is wonderful but you cannot force it. And sometimes it's going to come after a day, sometimes after a week, sometimes after a year, sometimes after a decade, sometimes it will never come. And our job is just to be open to it. It's not to fall into nihilism and despair, but it's not to be, I think what in the culture we'd call toxically positive and just try to force that. Cause the more that we try to force it deep down inside, we kind of know that we're lying to ourselves. And as you pointed out, sometimes we just have to give ourselves permission to sit with the pain and sometimes scars are just scars. There's not a great story behind them. It just sucks.
0: And I was in that bizarre situation of my 20s were like a terrible country song. I lost my mom. I lost my husband. I lost my father-in-law, foster child. Like The list went on and on. And then, and then I wrote the list of 13 things mentally strong people don't do as a letter to myself. It goes viral. And before I know it, I have a book deal. And like, it was happy and sad all at the same time. And yes, something good did come out of it, but I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to set out on this journey. It just sort of happened. But over the years, I've had a lot of people say, well, that's really good because you had something bad happen to you. So you deserve something good. But it like, it doesn't equal out. It doesn't mean that, yes, just because perhaps something positive ultimately came out of it doesn't mean that I'm like glad that my 20s happened.
1: Right. And, and, and I would say that, you know, as a colleague of yours, the the real meaning is just what a compassionate, beautiful, healer and conversation partner it's made you. And you might look at me and say, well, you know what? I'd rather have had my fiance back. And both those things can be true at once.
0: And that's another like incredible thing is that, yes, two things can be true at the same time, even when they feel like they are opposites, just like two conflicting emotions. You can be happy about a change, but you might also be sad about the thing you're leaving behind, right?
1: That is. And um, in the Western culture, we think so much in terms of this or that, yet so many profound truths are this and that. And when it comes to change in particular, I think that we get stuck into this thinking, which is we either need to be completely rugged and rigid and strong and resist change, or we need to be like Bruce Lee. We need to be like water. We just need to go with the flow and be super flexible. And it turns out the people that are best able to navigate change and grow from change, they're both rugged and flexible at the same time. So on the one hand, they know who they are. They have a very strong sense of self of their core values of what they stand for. On the other hand, they're very flexible in how they apply those values and their willingness to adapt those values and to change their mind over time. And when you marry these two things, the sense of ruggedness and strength with flexibility, You get someone that can really endure a lot of change and even thrive in its midst. And the most profound example for me of this is when you look at change on the grandest scale of all, which is evolution, right? This is change over millennia and millennia on the planet Earth. And the species that survive, they have to be really rugged. Because if every time a big change came, they were so flexible that they evolved into something completely different, well, then they no longer be what they were. But if they're not flexible enough to adapt and evolve, then they'd get selected out. So the species that endure, they have this core identity that they're very rugged about, but then they're flexible about everything else. And that allows them to evolve over time.
0: I'm glad that you brought that up because the entire subject of identity is a place where a lot of us get stuck and we don't want to make a change, right? Somebody said, you know, I was an accountant for 30 years. I don't want to be an accountant anymore. But if I give up that job, like, who am I? Maybe my friends think of me as the smart one. But if I go and do something else, then who would I Who would I be? And I, I live on a boat. And this is something I see a lot of is people identify themselves as like the boat person or a sailor. And maybe their health declines and it really no longer makes sense to live on a boat but yet they don't want to give it up because that's sort of who they are or how they identify or how other people identify them in their family. Maybe the quirky one that lives on a boat, yet they don't want to give it up. Why do we get into these situations sometimes where we think, I can't give up this thing that I do or this thing about myself because it's not just what I do, but it's who I am.
1: Identity is a really, really, really powerful construct. And when you think about individuals that have no sense of self or no sense of identity— Either you are at a spiritual monastery achieving enlightenment, or you're likely experiencing psychosis. So having no sense of self and just truly being so porous and open that it's everything always flowing um, is a very precarious and dangerous place to be. However, being really rigid and stuck to who you are leads to a lot of neuroticism, which tends to lead to anxiety and depression. So, back to this non dual thinking, like we don't want to be so open and have no sense of self because then we can never get through the day. It would be terrifying. However, if we cling so tightly to who we think we are and to the things that we think we do, we become really fragile because when things change, well, then who are we? So, aging is a great example. I live on a boat, but perhaps aging makes it really challenging for you to live on a boat and you would be safer and happier somewhere else. But if you can't adapt to that change, then you're going to be stuck on the boat. Um, and of so like a really good metaphor, perhaps I'll continue to use it. Like you don't want to get <laughs> stuck on the boat. Um, right. Why does that happen? Well, when we fuse our identity to things, it's really powerful because it gives us a sense of meaning and of purpose and um, it's exciting. And at the same time, when we fuse our identity to things again, we can become fragile because those things can change. So you see this in athletes all the time who really identify with being great at their sport and then an injury or illness comes along, or just natural aging and retirement, and suddenly they have no idea of who they are. And that's why we see really high rates of addiction, depression, and anxiety in injured and retired athletes. So what to do? I think there's a couple of things here. The first is if we can diversify our sense of self and have multiple buckets or areas of our life from where we draw meaning, the stronger and more robust we'll become. Because when something changes in one area that feels like a big blow, we can lean into others while we adapt to that change. So in the literature, this is called self-complexity. And it describes individuals that have a complex sense of who they are. So maybe you're an athlete, you're a writer, you're a neighbor, you're a parent, you're a gardener. Doesn't mean you have to do all these things world-class. It just means that you have to have more than one thing that makes you who you are. The second way to manage this is to surround yourself with a really strong and supportive community during those transitions, especially people that have been through similar or the same transitions before. Because it can feel really lonely and isolating when we shed our identity or when we morph our identity. And having other people that can hold that space for you is really, really helpful. And then the final thing that I'll say is, to the extent that we can be values-based in our ruggedness instead of thing-based, the better off we'll be. So what do I mean by that? Thing-based would be all-star basketball player or person who lives on a boat. Values-based would be athlete or somebody that likes to explore. Because if you're somebody that likes to explore and time comes for you to get off the boat, there are many other ways to lean into exploration. If you're someone that considers yourself an athlete, guess what? Playing in the NBA is just one of many ways to be an athlete. There are so many other ways. Maybe your core value is love of the game. You could coach, you could mentor, you could be an announcer, you could be a sports writer. And we've seen like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a lot of athletes have really transitioned beautifully into these pursuits that are still related to the thing they love, but in a different capacity. Um, So I think that really like trying to be values-based instead of thing-based is so, so important for us as writers. We can say that we are authors of published books. That makes us really fragile. Because what happens if a book flops and we don't get a book deal? What happens if books just go away because people's attention spans are too short to read? That would really suck. However, we could identify as writers or creatives, and there's multiple ways to write and multiple ways to be creative.
0: I like that idea a lot of just zooming out a little bit and saying it's not just about the thing that I do, but I could look at it from a slightly different perspective and realize I can still do that thing even if it's not in the same way, shape, or form that I used to do it. That's really important.
1: Yeah, the simplest way that I find to, to, to work through this is just to ask yourself, what's the value underneath the thing? So that like, I'd sense. be curious, not to, not to go into a coaching session with you, but like, what's the value underlying you're living on a boat right now?
0: Um, probably adventure.
1: Yeah, so then that's what you hold on to. And maybe you're on the boat for as long as possible, but at a certain point, when things change, then I would ask myself, all right, like I'm an adventurous person. This was a great chapter. What's the next adventure? So don't give up adventure, but you might have to give up living on the boat at some point.
0: Right, and then doing it differently. So if I were to develop a health issue someday that made it more difficult, I could still find a different way to experience an adventure or a different kind of lifestyle. Before we go, though, I want to talk, spend a minute and talk about what can people do? So if somebody listening is thinking, all right, I'm on the fence, I'm thinking about changing jobs, thinking about moving to a new city, thinking about doing something differently, but like I'm, I'm struggling with pushing myself to, to make the decision. Do you have any recommendations about how they can work through that?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of things. The first is I would give yourself a pat on the back and say that you're not alone. Uh, it's a universal experience to be tentative, especially with large voluntary changes. The second thing that I would say is you can ask yourself, if you don't make the change, where will you be six months from now or a year from now? And what do you think that'll mean for your life? And are you okay with that? And if you do make the change, try to imagine it going pretty well. Not great, not you hit a 10 out of 10 home run, not epic failure, but just pretty well. Because most things, when we're in control, they go somewhere between okay and pretty well. And what would that look like six months or a year from now? Or what would that look like a decade from now? And then you can compare those two things as a starting point. The second thing that I would say is you're never going to feel good about it if you're tentative. Like our brains are powerful. Once you're in tentative mode, there's always going to be like, well, what if, what if, what if? And the best bomb for that, the best medicine for that is just to get going and take action. So in the research, this is called behavioral activation. And it's such a powerful principle. I write about it extensively in the book and elsewhere, which is just that we think that our mood needs to be really good to do something, but often we need to do something to turn our mood around. So if on paper, it seems like the right thing, if we're hearing it's the right thing from trusted friends, from colleagues, from loved ones, but we're just tentative, sometimes we have to accept that and say, all right, I'm just going to do the thing and hopefully the feelings will follow. And then the final thing that can be really helpful is what research psychologists call self-distancing. And when we're in the thick of a really tough, ambiguous decision, we tend to almost merge with the situation. Like there's no space between ourselves and the ambiguous situation we're trying to navigate. Whereas if we pretend that a good friend is in that situation, and we really visualize that they're going through it and they come to us for advice. And then we say, well, what advice would we give that friend? and then we have to take that advice ourselves, that's generally the right thing to do. And again, what happens is it allows us to get a couple degrees of freedom between ourselves and this big decision. And then we can think really clearly as if we were giving advice to a friend.
0: Yeah, there's something about asking yourself that question that like the answer comes to you of, well, yeah, this would make the most sense or it's okay to do it even though you're kind of afraid. So I guess last question for you is, is it a myth that we have to feel 100% ready before we make a change?
1: I think that that is a myth. I think that nobody feels 100% ready before they make a change. It kind of comes back to the central idea in the book, right? We humans, we do crave stability. However, the way we get stability is by getting better at change. So we can't be stable by resisting change. We have to be stable by learning to change better and to change more harmoniously. So we're always somewhere in this cycle of order, disorder, reorder. Maybe we're at the order phase, but if we are, we shouldn't be too attached to it because eventually disorder is going to come, whether it's voluntary or involuntary. If we're in disorder, it might feel really hard. Like we talked about, it might feel like it's going to last forever, but we can take these skillful, productive actions to help shape the reorder period. And if we're back at order, then that cycle is just going to rinse and repeat. So the big mindset shift here is rather than try to stay at order, the goal is to navigate that cycle as fluidly as possible.
0: Wonderful advice. Brad Stolberg, thank you so much for being on Mentally Stronger.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Amy. It's always a pleasure getting
0: to chat with you. Thank you. Welcome to The Therapist Take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Brad's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of my favorite strategies that Brad shared. Number one, accept that change is part of life. We often spend a lot of energy fighting change, wishing it weren't true, or just insisting that something isn't fair. But you don't have to like something to accept that it's happening. Let's say you're in a traffic jam and you're going to be late. You can start banging your fists on the dashboard and yelling about how stupid people are for being in your way and how unfair it is that they're making you late. Or you can just accept that there are millions of cars on the road and traffic jams are bound to happen. When you're faced with changing circumstances, your energy is best spent just trying to adapt to change, not fight it, because you can't adapt until you accept reality. Number two, don't force growth when you go through tough times. I was really glad that Brad said this because a lot of people feel pressure to talk about how something traumatic made them stronger. And while there are times when challenges do help us rise to the occasion, there are other times when going through life's biggest tragedies, leaves us scarred. So you don't have to feel like you're always going to find a silver lining or that you're going to grow from every single circumstance that you face. You might find meaning, and if so, that's great, but don't force it. And number three, use self-distancing to gain clarity. Whenever your emotions are high, it's important to balance things out with rational thoughts. One of the best ways to do that is to introduce more logic by self-distancing. So I like that Brad suggested this. One simple way to do that is to take a step back and just ask, what would I say to my friend if they were struggling with this right now? You might find the answer comes to you pretty quickly because thinking about information you'd offer a friend gets rid of a lot of the emotion that clouds our judgment. Whenever you're struggling with change, give it a shot. You might find that it makes your decisions easier And the situations become clearer once you answer that question. So those are three of Brad's strategies you can try when you're struggling with change. Accept reality. Acknowledge personal growth, but don't force it. And use self-distancing to gain clarity. To learn more about Brad's tips, check out his new book, Master of Change. If you know someone who could benefit from hearing more about mental strength, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. Do you want free access to my online course? It's called 10 Mental Strength Exercises That Will Help You Reach Your Greatest Potential. To get your free pass, all you have to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Then send us a screenshot of your review. Our email address is podcast at amymorinlcsw.com. We'll reply with your all-access pass to the course. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to Mentally Stronger. And as always, big thank you to my show's producer, who changes sneakers more than most people change their minds, Nick Valentine.